Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. Glad y'all could join us. Um, as always, here with Robert and Zach again. Hola. Hey. Good seeing you guys again. It's been a few weeks since we've recorded. It's so nice getting back in the swing of things. Even though I saw you yesterday. I'm, that's fair. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> it's like, point. yeah, well, you know. you're breaking the illusion. The I'm illusion. <laughs> the illusion. Sorcery. Sorry. But um, we, uh, yeah, we're diving back into it. Um, and I think uh, from what we're going to talk about, we obviously are very gospel centered, very biblical message centered, but. We've kind of hinted about the Bible, um, but we've never actually done a deep dive into like what it is, what it means to a Christian, why it's so important. So I think that's the topic you guys wanted to bring to us. So um, I'm excited to, to dive into that. Um, before we get started, though, anybody out there, if you want to interact with us, we do have a Facebook page, the Achieving Christian Thought Podcast. Uh, visit us on Facebook. We also have our website, uh, theactpod.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. But um, yeah, Zach and Robert, uh, take it away. All right. All right. So we decided, although, like Brian said, we've mentioned various subjects of Scripture and the subjects of the Bible and, you know, things of that nature. But we felt like, like it's important to talk about, like, the necessity of the Bible. Why is it such important, especially in this day and age where there's so many uh, people, so many educated people that will go and say, well, the Bible's old. And because it's old, it's not relevant. Um, or something along those lines. You know, it was written thousands of years ago by men, and we're lived in such an enlightened age, and, and all these things are no longer relevant for us. But you know that's that argument that I've heard numerous times from people it's it actually doesn't really hold water because there's a lot of practical information in scripture I mean obviously as Christians you know the Bible is something else to us besides just that but there are proverbs and things of that nature in scripture that are highly highly applicable um, to modern day uh, aspects of our, our own society, our own culture, um, and things that um, uh, that you could say that we could emulate, and or things that we could uh, you know do without, in the sense like you know some of the ceremonial laws and things of that nature. Obviously, those don't apply to us because we're not Jewish people. Uh, specifically speaking about the Old Testament, uh, but. At the same time, there, it is important because it is historically uh, things that have happened in the past. And that, I feel like, is one, of the, one reason why it's important. 
Um, the other reason, and this goes into more of a theological realm uh, about it, is the fact that the Bible itself, you know, obviously it claims to be the Word of God, so that doesn't necessarily make it so. That would be circular reasoning. But there is a correspondence um, between reality and what the Scripture reveals about who God is and what he calls good and evil and things of that nature. So with that correlation, that correspondence to reality, it actually affirms uh, sort of so the, the, uh, the uh, biblical idea of who God is and things of that nature. Um, but, so let's, let's back up and we'll shoot it in a different <coughs> direction. So, where did the Bible come from? How did we get there with it? How, how, why... Why these books of the Bible? Why not other books of the Bible? Um, because, you know, the, the Catholic Church, they have, I mean, in case you didn't realize between me and Robert and Brian, we're obviously Protestant uh, Christians uh, with a background and probably more, a little bit more of a, a Baptist background. Um, so with that being said, you know, we have a, a certain view of scriptures, and, and then you have the Catholic Church that has a different view of scripture they have additional uh additional um books of the bible and so where does that come from why does that happen and things of that nature those are questions that we hope to answer (laughs) obviously we have we have an hour to go here unless we do a two-part episode which that could happen um, but, you know, the point of this episode is to try to get as much information, hopefully not lofty information, but basic information out there for anybody who's like, okay, I get Christians believe in Jesus, but the Bible, what about the Bible? Because, again, you know, it's so old. Um, and so I want to back up to the very beginning. What is the Bible? The Bible is uh, what we, as Christians, slash the Jewish people would probably agree with this, believe that God communicated to a man named Moses, and that's what began the Bible. Uh, There were historical events that happened outside the time of Moses, such as the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, and if you really want to get really down to it, as far as in Genesis, um, the, the creation of Adam and Eve. So, obviously, those are some pretty big um, claims there, you know, like uh, with Adam and Eve. And, like, is this really how the origin of humanity began and things of that nature? Um, and while... There are those out there who would say that, you know, just take it for uh, a uh, face value, you know, just read what it says and and don't really pick it apart. Um, There are uh, Christians that agree to disagree on some of the issues as far as, like, with creation. Um, They might hold a different view on the age of the earth and things of that nature, and Christians do disagree on those things. Um... But essentially, one thing that Jesus talked about was about Adam and Eve being actual people. 
Um, so even if you want to kind of disagree on the length of time between uh, the creation slash to the creation of man, uh, you might, you know, have a disagreement with that. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind that um, uh, that Jesus talked about these people actually existing. And so if Jesus is God, then it would make sense that and that whoever he talks about as an actual person, that they would actually be actual people. It wouldn't just be like some uh, illustration to to talk about their commonality or whatever, because he's reaching out to the to the people of the day and time of what they believed. But he actually believed that Adam and Eve were actual people that actually existed. Um, so the Bible is kind of like the first uh, five books of the Bible. You have the Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Is that five? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Make sure. <laughs> Sometimes I lose count. <laughs> but uh, so those first five books, again, the book of Genesis covers a lot of information, not necessarily in the time of Moses, but time before Moses, from the beginning to Moses. And a lot of people, you know, kind of argue the fact that um, Moses wasn't in the beginning, so how does he know that Genesis was actual, like the first three chapters of Genesis was to be taken literal or not. Again, there is some debate there, but I argue, if I argue over a position over this, I say, yeah, Moses wasn't there, but God was. And he can communicate to us how the creation happened. Um, So that's kind of like where I go with that. Not to say that everybody agrees with those thoughts on it. I mean, you know, uh, and that's the thing is, as Christians being able to agree to disagree on things. It's, it's not the end of the world. If you go and say, well, I think Genesis is metaphorical and up until, uh, up until Adam and Eve, it's all metaphorical and things of that nature. If you choose to hold that view, that's some might be upset with you, but I'm not going to be one of those people that's going to be like, no, you have to believe this or whatever. Um, I do think there's issues that arise from denying those things happened, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus. Um, but moving forward, so you have some pre-Moses uh, events, such as the creation account, such as the the fall, such as the flood, such as the all these things that believe we believe historically happened. Obviously, some people disagree with those things. Some scientists disagree with those things. But it's interesting that basically every society, ancient society out there, talks about a global flood at some level. And they're all different parts of the world, whether it be South America, you know, Asia, um, the Middle East, obviously with Mesopotamia and um, Jewish tradition. And then even in Greek culture, all these various different areas have an idea of a flood happening and nearly wiping out all of humanity. And, they, of course, there are variances in that, but they're still 
uh, a commonality of there being an actual flood and it being from divine judgment from the various gods that those people believed in at the day and time. Um, so then moving forward, so you have Genesis, and so then Exodus is basically kind of like Moses's diary of kind of like the events that happened. Really, I would say the, the other four books of the Pentateuch are kind of like the diary of Moses, kind of like, okay, we did this, the Israelites did this, first, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, God called me to do this, and I disobeyed and made excuses as Moses did, you know, and then he finally succeeds to doing what God's called him to do and continues on, and then the promised land, Israelites get to the promised land, but disobeying, you know, again, all those things are like the chronological footsteps of the Israelite people, and it begins from... Abraham, which is in Genesis, all the way to the time of uh, Moses, which is about 400 years difference. Um, and again, this is basically just kind of like the a rough shot. This isn't all the information out there. I mean, you could there's volumes um, out there of of uh, commentaries and things that uh, give this information that you can definitely get your hands on. Uh, any basic Bible, uh, uh, study Bible will have introductions and when was it written and who wrote it and things of that nature, when the time period was and stuff like that. Um, and so that was the first five books of the Bible. Um, and then for a while, that's basically all they had written down. And then, uh, yeah. And then we had, um, uh, lost my train of thought. So after, after the, um, first five books of the Bible, then you have Judges. And that is essentially where the Israelite people basically, <laughs> like in a spiral downhill of like events, like basically God would, raise up a and I think we even talked about this last time when we talked about the kings uh, basically God would raise up a judge deliver the Israelites and then there'd be another falling away from Yahweh and then you know so on and so forth um, and that was kind of like the, the in between time you had the time of Moses and then you had about 300 years between the time of Moses to the time of Saul, David, and Solomon. And we talked about those last week. And then you had the age of kings. Now, I will stop on um, David because presumably you have um, other things that are written at this time. Um, obviously, with Solomon, you had the, the Ecclesiastes that's written at this time with Solomon you have um, Song of Solomon, you have uh, Proverbs. Uh, this is called the, uh, going back, this is called the poetry section of Scripture. So the first five books of the Bible is called the Pentateuch. You know, it goes back to the time of Moses, uh, also known as the Torah, uh, the, when it focuses specifically on the law. And then you have the book of Judges, um, and it 
like the book of Ruth and a couple other books. Um, and then you have Psalms, which David wrote a, a large number of Psalms, which uh, is a, a, an amazing feat. But those are a lot individual songs that David wrote and other um, believers in Yahweh wrote as well. Um, but majority of them were from David. And then, like I said, you know, moving forward, we have the books that Solomon wrote. And then, so you you see, like, there's this beginning of um, uh, preserving historical events. You see prophets rising up, and part of their ministry is kind of like recording history, recording special things that happen in the time. Like, you have First and Second Samuel, which covers Samuel's time into David's time, and then from David's time into Solomon's time. And so at that point in time, I can't remember, Robert might know this, but I can't remember who they believe, tr Jewish tradition believes, wrote the First and Second Samuel. Do you, do you know that off the top of your head? Uh, no, he's a pretty much an anonymous priest for most people. There was a loose tradition that a lot of the editing, uh, the credit went to Ezra. Mm. He was kind of a scholarly hero to the Jews in a way because of his mention in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. But but yeah, that's the only name that really comes up outside of uh, the anonymous priest who edited. Um, a lot believe that he actually took um, various records from you know, different inscriptions, different scrolls that are now lost to us. And this person either copied them, filled in the blanks based on oral tradition to make, on one hand, to preserve what was already there, especially around the time of the exile. They had to hold on tight to who they were mm -hmm. or else they would fade out like many other cultures. And I've heard tell, and don't quote me in a scholarly journal <laughs> research, <laughs> but late. I've heard tell that... Um, you know, the Jewish nation out of the entire ancient world is the only one that still has a a full, solid grip on who they are as an identity. That we have in Egypt, we have um, other nations around the areas of Babylon, Mesopotamia, but they've all either uh, co-mingled with other nations or they have adopted such different traditions over time that even if we learn more and more about what was there, they are no longer as concretely equal to their ancient version as the Jews are, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go with that. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> One question I've, all, I've always had about the Bible, mm -hmm. and I hear you know, non-believers or people who are on the fence, they ask this question, mm -hmm. and just because I don't know much about the history of it, I don't really know that I've ever had a good answer mm -hmm. was it was like you're saying like back then mm -hmm. well, especially now but especially back then most of Jewish culture was you know passing down the stories you know and all that mm -hmm. a lot of stuff is it fair to say wasn't exactly written per se like most of it was stories that were told well you could definitely uh, say probably Genesis is a, a key example <clears throat> of of stuff that was passed down, I mean, uh, talking about the um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are definitely heavily oral based. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's one thing that um, there's people out there, you know, skeptics who talk about oral tradition and how unreliable it is. Yeah, and that's, um, and that's kind of where I was going because yeah. people, like, especially when you hear that, they'll like, well, okay, so you're talking thousands of years, mm-hmm. generation after generation after generation, mm-hmm. and especially before records could be copied reliably mm-hmm. way back thousand years ago, what have you, like, how can we guarantee, like, wh- what archaeological mm-hmm. anthropological whatever right, right. evidence is out there saying that what we have today mm-hmm. on our phones and our modern bibles mm-hmm. that that's what it actually was way back when at the time that over the different translations over the centuries right. hasn't gotten modified some stuff mm-hmm. added stuff subtracted right right yeah <clears throat> yeah um so one thing that i would say that kind of going off what you're talking about, is the Jewish people and a lot of people in the uh, Middle East, even to this day, are heavily, heavily oral-based tradition. Mm-hmm. Like, in our society, like we play, we play the phone tag game. Like, you know, someone gets up, they whisper something in somebody's ear, and it goes to the next person, and it goes to the next person, and it goes to the next person, and so on and so forth. So at the end of the game, you know, the last person gets up and says what was told – and it's all kind of completely different. And it's cold, yeah. completely different, you know. And they use that as a refutation against oral tradition. But the problem with that is, Western society has been book based, not oral based. You talk about the Middle East; they're like whenever they recite something, they're like ninety-seven to ninety-eight percent accurate from what has been told to them by somebody else. So. It's kind of like comparing apples to oranges. Western society is really heavily based on books, whereas the Middle East and Jewish culture is not. I mean, they do have books, don't misunderstand me, but they're still heavily influenced by oral tradition. And so because of that, like you have 97 to 98% accuracy transmission from one person to the next. So... It's kind of a, a misrepresentation of of kind of like what oral tradition is. Um, so there's that. There's also <clears throat> archaeological evidence that we have found that predates things. Now, obviously, we don't have oodles upon oodles. Like the New Testament, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of Greek we have other languages that we can cross-reference and things of that nature that we can really have a good idea of what the New Testament actually said, like the writers of Paul, James, and John, and all of them. We have various copies and copies of copies and things of that. So we have a pretty good idea about the New Testament. The Old Testament, we do have like the Septuagint, which... Um, in the second century BCE, I believe one seventy roughly. Robert can probably track this a little bit better than I could if you want to go into it. Um, yeah. So, um, the what? What was the last manuscript that you were touching on? I was just talking about the Septuagint, basically. Oh yeah, the Septuagint was yeah around roughly around the time that Zach just said, hundreds, 
And according to tradition, um, this actually was denoted by the number 70 because according to tradition, <clears throat> which may or may not be completely accurate to history, it took 70 scholars 70 days to complete the Septuagint. And what the radical difference, uh, what the radical um, significance of the Septuagint was, was this was the very first time that Scripture takes on a complete and utter um, translation from top to bottom. This is the first time that uh, the Jewish community actually accepts Scripture in another language as universally as they do. Um, we've got some instances in the life of Christ where um, Scripture was translated into Aramaic for the sake of the common people. They actually spoke Aramaic in his day. But uh, they lean so heavily on the Greek because you have the dispersion, uh, the diaspora of the Jews. They're able to spread to different parts of the world and re retain their Jewish identity. And so the Greek became what you'd call the lingua franca. If uh, you want to look at a culture at any part of history, you've got to look at that. Basically, the, the central tongue that was universally shared based on who has the power. Um, ironically, English is our modern lingua franca. Uh, in Europe, they will teach uh, children to speak English almost as early as they speak their first language so that they communicate with us because we're the superpower of the modern day. And so in the day of the Septuagint, that was uh, the central unifying language was Greek because of Alexander's conquering. And so you've got the Septuagint offering... Um, a couple of new things. Uh, you have the opportunity for Gentiles to look at the text and actually understand it. Uh, someone who came into town could look at this and they would not have to learn Hebrew from the ground up in order to open up the book of Genesis. They could look at the Jewish belief uh, firsthand uh, in a language that they understood. Um, it also had an opportunity that Jews, ironically, they used to have a centralized identity in the days of David and Solomon, and even going on into the future uh, kings during the divided kingdom. But now, you've got people who are Jewish uh, by spiritual lineage, and yet maybe people have commingled in the family, maybe their blood has been mixed with other races. Samaritans. Samaritans. And... Uh, <laughs> Long story, maybe a whole episode dedicated <laughs> to Samaritans someday. But yeah. uh, but um, you have these people who are Jewish by by their spirit, and yet they have completely different genetic strands, thanks to the spread. Um, it started with Abraham's family, and many many families joined in that fun, <laughs> long term. <laughs> and so you have uh, people who may have grown up in radically different cultures who are Jewish. And yet they have uh, what you call Hellenistic culture, basically Greek culture that unifies them. It was all the rage in all the corners of the world. And so it allowed people who, ironically, Hebrews who forgot to speak Hebrew over time, they would slowly have the chance to be able to read it in the lingua franca of their day as a substitution. Now also... And this is the part that kind of fascinates me. I have not personally studied the Septuagint as much as I wish I could say I have. I know some people, they, I mean, deep, I'm not deep one. textual <laughs> scholars. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've read the whole Septuagint in the original. But uh, I have not. But, uh, you know, deep, deep textual scholars, I mean, they will devote hours of their lives. I mean, countless hours of their lives 
meticulously matching up certain verses in the Septuagint to verses in other translations that we haven't even mentioned yet. Uh, Not to overwhelm you, but just to give you an idea, they'll look at, you know, the Textus Receptus, which the King James is based off of, the Latin Vulgate, uh, the Septuagint, which is what we're talking about, and they'll compare it to uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, and they will basically look at all these similarities and differences and what the Septuagint offers as opposed to all these others. This is the very first time outside of Jewish oral tradition, uh, perhaps the teaching of the rabbis and the priests in the temples, this is the first time we have solid, written, concrete interpretation on top of translation. In other words, when a Hebrew word did not perfectly match a Greek word, uh, the same situation we have in English and German and French and any other language out there today, they had to decide which word in the Greek would best match the way they understood that verse in the Hebrew. And in the original Hebrew, it was, now, it sounds awful for an evangelical Christian to say this about the actual Hebrew Bible, but if I had one in my hands, the way Moses wrote it, the way David wrote his Psalms, the way Solomon wrote his Proverbs, it would be an absolute kind of, I hate to say it, it would be an absolute train wreck. Um, the words have no spaces between them. There are no vowels. Uh, the the sages who and the scribes who copied these by hand, they actually had to invent a dot system around the Hebrew in order to implement vowels where it was traditionally interpreted where the vowels would go. And so you can imagine that two or three words that are very similar could fit in, in, in that sentence, and you had to decide based on the context of that sentence which word means uh, which word makes the most sense. Now, most of the time, this was easier than it sounds. If it could mean dolphin, bird, or, you know, your grandma, you know, the pelican and the dolphin did not bake you cookies. And so you obviously have, okay, it's got to be the grandma baked me cookies. <laughs> so sometimes it was obvious. It's a special dolphin there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dolphins are pre- the ones that see world, pretty smart. I don't know about baking cookies though. If the Lord can make a donkey speak, he can make cookies come out of a dolphin. But uh <laughs> easy We're bake oven. That in there, by the way. Easy bake oven. Even an animal can do it. But uh <laughs> easy, easy bake. But um where was I going? <laughs> we were talking about Septuagint. Thank you. Yes. Um but you have this interpretive skill in the Septuagint where these scholars came to a consensus about how these things were meant, not just in the Hebrew, that vowel system I mentioned, but people actually using it as an opportunity to translate the way they understood certain sentences, certain verses, uh, the way things ought to be based on their understanding of Hebrew. And so you can actually map out believers' thought through history looking at the Septuagint. And so, as ironically, it's the Bible of Jesus. Some people don't even realize Jesus himself, and evangelicals, we believe he was God incarnate. He did not use Scripture in its original given language, and yet it never bothered him. In his mind, he still had the Word of God by all intents and purposes, even though he wasn't walking around with actual Hebrew manuscripts in Moses' own handwriting. Uh, just the fact that this had been copied so meticulously that he was confident in how he was using it. He was quoting it in the Septuagint, not in the original, uh, what we would consider Masoretic Hebrew text. 
And so uh, to carry on from there, um, I mean, honestly, we could probably spread – if we really wanted to go deep, and I know nobody would sit through this, but we could do <laughs> five or six separate shows just slowly going through the history, the textual history of Scripture. But um, And if Zach would uh, rather touch on one a little earlier in time, just stop me. But, um, you know, getting into the days of the church, uh, Jesus is crucified. He rises from the dead. Uh, he he ascends to heaven. The church is born as we know it. Uh, the New Testament is launched. I mean, the events of the New Testament occur, and then people start to write them down. And so, um, while the the Hebrew Bible is a nation conserving its history, it's like going to the library and trying to buy something. You know, the the common man's history of the United States, and it'll just cover in plain language everything from the founding to, you know, what you had for breakfast this morning. That's the Hebrew Bible as they understood it. The New Testament is a whole different kitten, mm-hmm. um, yeah. oh, a whole different animal. And so you've got people's personal mail. You're reading their letters. You are reading people's personal testimony. It's like they're in court testifying to what they saw and heard on a certain Sunday when they were standing in the street and the sky was off to the left, and I turned around, I saw someone come out of a house, and Jesus healed this man. He was blind. He healed him right in front of me. Let me tell you about it. And so it gets very, very personal once we get to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then, uh, now, from here on out, it, when we say the word Bible, we mean the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament editions slapped together. And so now you've got this, all these situations. Before you go there, I will like to just kind of put a pause. Um, there are other historical um, things aside from the Septuagint um, that we still are finding, and that's archaeological evidence. And we have found um, copies of one of the oldest copies of Isaiah in the um, Dead Sea Scrolls. So you have the Septuagint, and you have different other um, copies that are found throughout time, throughout the ages, as time has moved forward. And so we can actually cross-reference those and and actually know, like, I believe they did a, a that that text of Isaiah, which was found in... Um, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls was like 125 BC so like and you can compare it to today's version and there's like a 99.8% accuracy I think there's only like one word and it's light and it's even in that sense it's not really it's not a big huge issue so in almost 2000 years you can compare verbatim like how accurate it is um i just wanted to touch on that robert really quick before you went into that so just little segue sorry no you're fine (laughs) you're fine because going forward uh you know we were dealing with um scrolls and now we're going to deal with codex codices that's actually what we are familiar with now uh two covers with uh individual uh, chopped pages in the center and you can turn one page after another. And the early Christians were some of the innovators of this because they were trying to find ways to house their entire collection of Scripture. And they considered every last bit of it from Genesis to Revelation with a few exceptions, and we can get into that in a minute. 
um, the idea that if, if you take a Catholic Bible and a Protestant Bible and hold them up side by side, you'll see differences in it. And so how in the world do you explain differences when we, we keep talking about universal acceptance? And so we will get back to that in just a moment. But basically, the early Christians were trying to figure out a new way to make it more portable, especially when um, uh, executions began, persecution was, was rampant. Um, they decided they really had to pull out all the stops to preserve their own word. Um, an ancient Jewish synagogue, as uh, people in the late Hebrew scripture, uh, the Old Testament era, the Middle Testament era, Jesus' own time, what they would have seen if they went to the synagogue was um, a, an area behind the speaker that the, the keeper of the synagogue kept in order. And it would be, uh, imagine if you've seen a classroom full of cubbies. And uh, they would actually have a different scroll carefully placed inside of each cubby. And the scroll only contained a single book of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, these would all be separate. You would pull out the one you wanted, unroll roll it to that certain section, read it out, and then you, you would roll it back up and put it in the cubby. Now what a codex, a modern idea of a book, offered was the for the first time you were actually able... So to sustainably carry every single one of the books of Scripture in one. Now, it was still colossally massive. If you ever have a chance to go into a museum and stand in front of an ancient codex, uh, prime, two prime examples, the oldest copies we have of uh, the complete Bible as we know it, the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus, both of them in the Middle East or in Europe. Uh, if you can travel over to those parts of the world and see those, uh, you'd be shocked just how thick those things are. It's kind of like um, an 80s cell phone versus the modern cell phone. <laughs> you can have a a Bible, a slimline Bible in your backpack as opposed to this tome that took up half your coffee table. But it could be your coffee table. <laughs> it could serve as a coffee table. <laughs> and uh, yet these, these were such uh, renovative um, changes in technology for people. Um, because if you had tried to have the complete scripture on a scroll, it would have been way too big, way too thick, way too heavy to have ever carried anywhere. It probably would have sat on a table and stayed, and you can't run from persecution and keep that intact, keep that under your arm and toe. And so you have a whole new era for transmission of scripture. Like Zach mentioned um textual criticism the idea that you know we can go back and we can find the earliest copies and to decide that well it's great that the christians preserved it but did they actually preserve the right thing what if you know certain chapters of isaiah were altered changed what if there was another book of the bible that was actually lost what if they were added in and honestly the really comforting thing is that you know modern scholarship has really done its homework we have found small instances and i'll use the king james as our standard point because this culture looks back to the king james Why? as it's older <laughs> the puritans <laughs> it's like friend. okay yeah we're going to focus on 1611 it's like you do realize that the bible has been around a lot longer than that stop <laughs> focusing on that <laughs> Oh yeah, and oh, sorry. oh, it's all good. But there are certain parts of the King James Bible that, since then, we've actually discovered either little portions don't belong or little portions were added. 
But instead of shaking your faith, uh, it should actually give you confidence to know that these people are doing their homework. Otherwise, they would have never found those things. And so just the idea that they can actually go back and find those those errors, um, whatever that error may have been, whatever the explanation for it over time, but uh, those, I will say two things. Those are very, very small instances in all of Scripture. When you look at the thousands of years and how much farther back we're able to look, and like Zach said, the vast majority, like 99% of Isaiah, 99.9% of Isaiah is completely the same. And so we've preserved those things. And those small events have been found and fixed since then. And so we can actually have full confidence that what we have in front of us is as close as possible to the very original words of what was what was said. And and just as a, a little another little side note, so um, way scholarship works today, and this is going back to kind of like what Robert was saying is like we look to the earliest manuscripts that we can get our hands on. So back in the day, a long, 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 long time ago. <clears throat> There was a cat named Jerome. He was an early church father, and he learned Hebrew, and he already he was Greek, uh, and he learned Hebrew from a, a rabbi, and so he translated the uh, the Bible and in, completely into Latin. That's where you get the Latin Vulgate. So, and this is where Robert talks about um, the translation of a translation. So the Latin Vulgate was the, the, the Catholic Church's magnum opus. It was their version of Scripture that they used. And so when Protestants first came about, they were actually, instead of going back to the Greek like they should have, um, they translated from the Latin version. So modern scholarship today, they acknowledge the, the, the Latin pool so to speak of of scripture but they go beyond that they go past it to the original manuscripts the greek manuscripts and that's in a nutshell kind of like what robert's saying just as a point of kind of clarifying just because it's textual criticism is one of those things that i mean if you don't watch it it can it can undermine your faith because i mean there's some people who have a lot of speculations i think Bert Ehrman is without maybe calling out his name. Whoops. Maybe edit that out. I don't know. Um, but uh, there's people out there who like, th- like learning these things can shake your faith in the sense that if you hold on dogmatically to a certain translation and then you find out, Oh, that translation may not have been the best translation. It was good for its time. But now we've got better manuscripts to base our translation off of, you know, because, I mean, even the King James, as, as the issues that arose from it, they weren't doctrinally, they didn't affect theology. I think it was just various instances of where words were added to make sense. And maybe even as the English language evolved, those things were put in to help it kind of make that transition to more to flow more easily. And now we can look back and go, okay, we can respect that, but we can also look beyond that to the earlier manuscripts, such as Greek and things of that nature. Indeed. And so uh, going forward through the Catholics, uh, the Catholic Church's uh, massive history, 
uh, as Zach said, they lean heavily on the Latin Vulgate, and so some of the um, some of the pristine translation work that had been done before had been lost a little bit, simply because instead of and Zach has said this, so I won't dwell on it, but instead of going back to the original languages, they simply went back to the Latin and stopped there. And so it affected many, many um, decisions and conclusions that were made when someone tried biblical scholarship until uh, recently going into the Protestant era and beyond when uh, the the Christian world began to have an upshoot outside of, you know, the Catholic or or Greek Orthodox faith. Um, You have ideas where people are actually going back to the original to make sure that the the knowledge and the information we have is of the highest quality. The earliest form of that movement in the early modern world was something called humanism. Uh, it's not to be confused with modern humanism today, but er, classical humanism was actually, it was kind of a, an upsurge in Hellenism. It became vogue to go back and read the classics in Greek and I'm talking, you know, Plato, Aristotle, uh the the poetry of Virgil. And so during that time instead of settling for Latin which they had settled for hundreds of years at this point, instead they decided that they really needed to invest the time to learn the Greek and the Hebrew of the early earliest scriptures so that they could go back and study those things as directly as uh, they used to study it centuries before. And that's caused a a whole new uptick in uh, biblical scholarship. That's where we found those small mistakes that I mentioned in the King James that we now know are no longer a part of the original scripture. And they have not affected a single doctrine of the Christian faith. They have not added or taken away anything of true significance to the Christian worldview. So everything that we now know to be genuine to the scriptures. <laughs> Fight that yawn. Fight it. Fight it. Fight the yawning. Everything we now know to be genuine to the scriptures are uh, things that have that you can build a complete view of Christ and sin and salvation and the church based uh, church on. Everything that had actually founded the Christian church to begin with and the Christian worldview to begin with. And so uh, now we have the modern era. Uh, we have electronic scripture, which is, I mean, a whole new ocean of possibilities and possible abuses. Um, I read an article a few years ago about the the modern miracle of biblical databases. Um, people can actually take one word out of the English Bible and cross-reference it so much. You can find every instance of that word in every English translation that has been, ever been known to the human race. Or you can cross-reference that to another any other language that the Bible has ever been translated into and, trans, and cross-reference that to the English translation that you're looking at all the way back to the Hebrew and, Hebrew and Greek Bibles. And you can actually, and we talked about people who spend hours of their year, of their lives comparing different manuscripts. What used to take you days of work in a library, you can actually do at the drop of a hat, at the clip of, click of a mouse, uh, at the click of a link, as you have, people have actually digitized these ancient manuscripts. People have volunteered to scan copy ancient manuscripts page for page just once because they they try to be careful with lighting and museums for preservation but 
they will agree to allow it just once so that that is that ancient manuscript is now permanently and forever ever ever stored in a digital database so that long after it's turned to dust and it's just uh helping your your flower pot grow <laughs> people will still be able to access ancient ancient manuscripts in a way above and beyond what someone in even in the 15 1600s ever would have been able to imagine but uh unless Zach has anything else to add we can jump into the the whole extra books issue yeah, that can, I promised we can, we can do that i mean uh i will do i don't do many shameless plugs for the catholic church but one thing that we'll say is that they preserved early church father works like you can find, and I mean, it's kind of nerdy, um, but you can find the letters of Ignatius. You can find Polycarp, <clears throat> these letters that were not considered canon, but they existed shortly after the New Testament era. And the, and that, and that you can see, like, these were important documents that were saved, but they weren't considered New Testament canon. Um, and I mean, and the thing about that is, is it shows, like, the like the early pe- the early church from the get go had a high expectation and high idea of what canon was and how certain books like although they were revered they weren't placed on the same pedestal if that makes sense for lack of better analogy there I mean you've got Ignatius I said um, Aronius um, his five books um, which the fifth book is really interesting. Uh, I enjoyed reading that. Um, Justin Martyr, his first and second apology. There's all kinds of like tidbits. Jerome, Tertullian, all these ancient history. Uh, Eusebius, another church father from the, uh, I guess it'd probably be the. Uh, Eusebius guess, was like mid 300s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right there whenever uh, it became okay to be a Christian. <laughs> yeah. When he could publish it without being chased to the ends of the earth. Yeah. He did it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's, 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 it's, there's so much information and it's one thing you gotta be careful of. It's like you start digging into this stuff and what people believe in that time and things of that nature. Like it can, it can, you can get sidetracked of what, really matters as far as like the gospel um and one thing that won't tie in with the old testament is the old testament point and we've talked about the prophecies of jesus and i don't want to hash that out again but those prophecies of jesus are rooted in the old testament and so that makes it important for christians because God, this goes back to kind of like the whole idea of what the Bible is um, in a nutshell. God communicating to us, to man, effectively, and us writing down what he says. And so that is God revealing, he revealed the past in the sense of our beginning, and he also revealed who Jesus was before he was there. When Jesus was there, you know, he testified that Jesus was more than just a prophet. He was more than just a good teacher. He was God. Um, and then moving on into the New Testament time, I mean, with the church fathers, uh, the apostles, I should say, they 
all revere Jesus. And so it's like the New Testament and the Old Testament go together. You can't have one without the other because they're both equally important. Um, they're like, they're two bookends, if that makes sense. And in the center is Jesus. And that's what bridges the gap between the two. Um, and that's why you have, I mean, obviously there's some debate, like, because we're about to get into like the different books of the Bible, why they are in there and whatnot. But ultimately, those core books of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, you know, point to Jesus. And Jesus being God, he is the most important figure in history, human history, because he is our Redeemer. And so that goes into why we still revere this book that, like, talking about if if Abraham actually existed, they're talking about he was in the 22, 2100s B.C. So this cat who was by himself over four millennia ago, why is he relevant to us today? And the answer is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So... And as we go into this discussion of the extra books, the scary books that uh, some people might not know how to explain or really shake someone's faith, because I've actually heard the argument from people is, you know, well, if this edition that I bought at this bookstore has six extra books and this edition that this guy was selling at this vendor at, you know, at a comic con or something was has, you know, five extra books. How in the world can I possibly know that the traditional one that you would find 90% of the time, how do I even know that those books are really legitimate? What if, I mean, if it's that arbitrary, how do I know? Why not just cut out the, the icky ones and keep the, the relaxing ones? And first, let me say, the reason we have the solid core Bible, the 66 books that have been accepted, uh, the the reason is because the people who actually stood on that tradition for so long, they came to those conclusions about which books are legitimately reliable and inspired. They came to that decision over long, grueling thought, consideration. Uh, they came to consensus on most of them without any effort because they recognized the value for different reasons, and that can be a different show for another time. <laughs> but you can rest assured that these people put in the homework necessary to make sure that these 66 books would capture what the the essence of being a believer and understanding what you need to know about the reality you live in from a Christian perspective. But these extra books, they all have a flaw of some kind that the central 66, I like that term, <laughs> There's a lot of alliteration in there. <laughs> the central I might actually call I might write a book on this someday and just call it that as an excuse to copyright it. But the <laughs> Central sixty six, um the reason that we actually have these extra books that are condemned other than the central, I mean they all have flaws that aren't shared by the core books. And so what I mean is either they will and I mean, I can just list examples uh, as long as I don't run off and lose anyone. Uh, he can actually, uh, they, there are some books that are actually, they cl- they're claimed to be written by certain people who are known as a fact to be dead from the time and era that the book was written in. Uh, there, we, and we know the time and era, we have an idea of the time and era f- 
based on lots of different pieces of evidence. Or it'll actually say things that directly contradict known history. Uh, or uh, it'll have a, and some people will roll their eyes when I say this, and I'll explain myself well, I hope. But uh, <laughs> there are some stories that are so grandiose and over the top that you they really come across like a Jewish version of Grimm's fairy tales as opposed to a miracle in the scriptures. Now, what I mean by that, and some of you are thinking of talking donkeys and parting seas and you know stars that lead wise men to, to baby stables, and you're thinking, well... Surely you are literally just picking and choosing which ones you're wanting to accept and which ones you're not willing to accept. But I think the only real solid way to address that, and I actually heard a scholar say this. He said, all you got to do is read something from the Central 66 and read something from the extra stuff, and you will see a difference. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about very subtle, oddly believable accounts. And I'm talking like, yes, a donkey spoke one time in the presence of someone who was otherwise alone with this animal. So he heard the, the animal speak, but he was it was just him and an angel. Or uh, there's the account where the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant into a tent in the presence of Dagon, their stat- the statue of their god. They leave, they come back, and Dagon is laying on the floor in a position that looks as though Dagon is bowing to the Ark. And so... You know, these very subtle, you know, hair on the back of your head, hair standing on the back of your neck stories. But then you read these extra books, and it is so over the top. Uh, I remember there's an account in the Apocrypha. That's what we call those extra books that are presented in the Catholic canon. They they consider it the Deutero canon. Um, Even they have a special place for it. You know they don't fully accept it as one as one and equal with the other books, but there's an account of Daniel trying to get through a trap door past a dragon, and he takes wax and hair, curls it up into a ball, feeds it to this beast, and the dragon explodes. And so it's pretty uh, cool. I pretty mean, cool. Sounds like Lord of the Rings in a way. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Is the <laughs> Jewish version of Lord the, of the Rings. <laughs> It's what the first J stands for in J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> oh, terrible. But, uh, but uh, you know, we have these over-the-top stories as opposed to the very subtle ones that are presented in authentic scripture. But uh, And I know another story um, from the same grouping, the Apocrypha. And, you know, this book will actually give you um, the the name of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and claim that he was the king of the Persian kingdom. If I if I'm remembering correctly, I believe they they put Nebuchadnezzar in the Persian kingdom, like Nebuchadnezzar, king of Persia, which is just just mishmash of historical things. And uh, you know, there's some very very detailed accounts in the apocrypha, the the books of Esdras, uh, first and second, and some have third and fourth. It's literally just uh, kind of a a less reliable version of the revelation. And what I mean by that is a character is curious about what the afterlife's like. An angel comes um, as an Ebenezer Scrooge style, says, I will show you, come with me, whisks away the the, the narrator. And they go through a very, very detailed account of the afterlife, like exactly what it looks like, what's happening to people, you know, things that, you know, in the, the main scriptures in the reliable scriptures god himself says is beyond 
uh, human knowledge, so he's not going to reveal everything to us anyway. And yet these books, they just lay everything out. They just lay the carpet out. And just happens to line up with a certain uh, grouping of uh, of uh, individuals. Like it's like whenever you look at it, it's like, well, that's clearly teaching purgatory. It's like mm, pretty sure that's not clear in the '66, but now it's suddenly clear in this book over here that's <laughs> not considered canon. Oh yeah, but we're gonna call it canon. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and as Zach just said, it always seems to be in favor of the ones who wrote it. Yeah. We have a, a basically a cult. There's no way around it. A cult known as the Essenes. They're responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls that we've talked about before. And, of course, everything in their script. Now, of course, they had genuine scripture, but we actually found a lot of manuscripts of theirs that go beyond it, uh, beliefs that they held specifically as a people group and bylaws that they followed as a people group. So, of course, all of their revelatory stuff, their their eschatology, their end times talk, everything that they had glorified their own group. They actually believed that everyone would be wiped out and judged except for themselves. They were, it's the idea of a doomsday prepper that we have in our modern minds. They were hunkered down in this cave waiting for everything to just explode and because they were faithful, they were going to be the ones who would escape the lion's mouth and be in paradise with God. And we know historically as a fact that's not what happened. <laughs> the Romans came and slaughtered them all. Slaughtered them all, and they left their goodies for us to find many two, years later. Two, almost two millennia later. Oh, yeah. And the reason being, they relied more heavily on the, the own creativity of their writers than they did uh, the revelation from God, the things that had truly come down and inspired all of these other, and I would say pseudo-fictional writings that came later. Because you have to remember, the Jews, just like anyone else, they were an entire culture. They had their own bedtime stories, their own folklore, uh, their own versions of tales to make kids jump in the night. Um, they had you know, funny little traditions that aren't necessarily biblical. People living their lives, telling tales, using their imagination with their own scriptures as the foundational basis for this. A good example of that is the book of Enoch. Well, there's two books of Enoch, but one of them talks because there's a reference for in Genesis 6. It talks about the angels coming down and, and sleeping with women and creating the Nephilim. And so, which is one interpretation. There's two different interpretations. Well, there's probably more than two, but two common interpretations of Genesis 6. First being that angels actually came down and had sex with women, and they shouldn't have, but they did anyways. And because that happened, it created the Nephilim. And the book of Enoch talks about, like, the Scripture mentions it just briefly and then talks about the flood. Um, and that's why some people conclude that the flood happened was not really so I mean it was a judgment of on sin but it was also a judgment against these angels that did wickedness um, that's what some people interpret it um, but going back to that book of Enoch is it kind of like hashes out what the giants were like and things of that nature kind of like what Robert was talking about it's like folklore that's not clearly in scripture but it kind of like added to it kind of like well let's add some ideas because there's only one physical description of a giant and that is goliath 
and even Goliath is under 10 feet tall. So he's not like a 60-foot-tall monster with, you know, like what we consider giants today. He was more mm-hmm. of a like a really big Shaquille O'Neal, but a little bit bigger than that. I mean, we have some people, I mean, historically we have people that's, it's rare, but it does happen of people reaching nine feet tall, if not taller. Um, and that's what the scripture says. Like, this guy was a giant and he was so such and such tall, but he wasn't 60 feet. And so that's kind of where there's this tradition that kind of segues into this idea that's presented and it's not necessarily biblical but it kind of goes into the jewish folklore and the new testament probably what happened the most with that was gnosticism and i've mentioned gnosticism before talking about i think when we talked about the canon before talking about the the gospel according to mary magdalene and that's clearly um I mean, like like Robert said again, you read the 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 core doctrine of I mean the core of scriptures, and then you read Mary Magdalene and talks. Though Jesus says, you know, her and Jesus are alone, and she's like, Jesus, what about me? I'm a woman, and Jesus looks at her and says, Well, you'll be born again as a man. That goes against foundational Christianity. Like Jesus never once said, Okay. Mary, Martha, by the way, you I love you guys. I love Lazarus, but you guys are going to be literal guys. You were women, but now you're going to be men. He never says that ever until this random book that's like at least three, four hundred, three hundred years later after that time. So it's like it's a clear corruption of a Gnostic idea. And they're just trying to pee back off of that idea that, oh, I have authority because I'm Mary Magdalene. But it's not really. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But so you go into um, this era where actually scholars can attest to a little bit of confusion trying to uh, wrestle this, this fish out of the ocean when they search for the real Christianity. Um, you can actually go to a library now, uh, maybe for those who are deep seekers you already have some of these books on your shelf but it'll actually talk about the first christianities it's not ancient christianity singular but they'll treat it as as this plurality that wrestles with uh the different ideas about jesus that tried to win the throne a good a nice layman's way to understand this in their minds they think that the very first christians were uh, basically jewish intellectual uh, Game of Throners, trying to overturn the competition so that their version of Christianity won out. And basically, the way they see this is all these different camps of Christianity were settling in, uh, finding their niches, building up their followers, seeing how they could overthrow their competition. And they, the way they see this is, for whatever reason, uh, maybe a bunch of happy uh circumstances that fell in favor of this one man but they actually say that you know paul of tarsus but came out the 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 final victor his version of christianity defined western civilization from here on out and there are so many problems with that idea um in order to have that idea of multiple christianities vying for a place you'd have to have uh, genuine evidence for complete chaos 
And yet, that when you look deeper, that's not what you see. The scholars who believe in multiple Christianities, they base that entire thesis off of the idea that uh, when you look at all these different manuscripts, they all tell different stories, and they all come from relatively the same time period, as opposed to like the Middle Ages or the early modern period. And so they jump from that that fact that these documents exist to the speculation, to the interpretation that, okay, this must have been uh, different, if you want to call them different religious gangs under the banner of Jesus trying to roll up in each other's turf. But pop, 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 pop. <laughs> but what the truth is, is you always have this one strand of teaching that actually glows its way through the center of all of this chaotic turmoil. It's people coming up with their own teachings, people having their own camps in their own name, using the name of Jesus to push themselves. But then you have the teaching of the apostles. And there is evidence that these apostles' teachings, which is the authentic Christianity that we all know when you peel away denominational things, peel away traditional aspirations, any sincere Christian church will be teaching the apostles' creed. Uh, the idea that Jesus came, was God in the flesh, he died and rose again, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the church in his name for those who believe in him. Preach it, brother. Preach it. And so you have evidence for this shining through, and it's not that the apostle Paul was this massive champion that took out all the competition. He wasn't Al Capone. <laughs> the Apostle Paul simply had this genuine, authentic truth. And the reason it won out is because the people that were hearing all these different Christianities, they saw the the truth in the middle of all the counterfeits. Mm-hmm. You know, if you try to peddle money and you have a few genuine dollars and tons and tons of counterfeit dollars... Uh, eventually, if people know what to look for and you have experts trying to hunt you down, all that counterfeit money is going to be taken out because there are certain things that they will look for to prove that this is not the genuine article. And Paul is the one who had the genuine article. He was the only one out of all these different versions of the Christian faith that did not want to push self. Uh, the church pushed him as a hero, but he himself didn't see it that way. He was all about Christ. And so the reason his name is so famous is because it was presented with Christ. He was the one who preached himself. All the other, all these other, um, I would call them Christo cults, they always had a leader other than Jesus that pushed these ideas. Mm-hmm. And there's so many of them, so many smaller names in the midst of you know, the big name of Christ, they've all disappeared, and yet Paul's version, and I say version lightly, you've already just heard me describe how I see this, Paul's presentation is the one that remained. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a pastor down in Atlanta, and I love the way he said it. He said, um, we have preserved as much as we could of what Paul wrote not because Paul himself was stellar, not because he was a best-selling author, but because we, the people who heard him knew that he was telling the truth. And when he was able to come up against others who tried to defy his teachings, he was able to simply stand on the fact that this was the truth. And then he says, as for all the others, they're all faceless. He says, we remember Paul. Mm-hmm. 
but nobody has ever seen fit to bother remembering any of the other names that have come up that have tried to preach something against what he has said. Right. And and uh, and, uh, and going back to kind of like what you were saying, Robert, is, you know, there was the um, early church, like I, I mentioned previously in the previous episode, that we still have those documents that you can find to this day that even like, like uh, uh, erroneous talked about in his five volumes he talks about uh, Micron which was a heretic at the time who liked the Greek idea of God but he didn't like the Jewish aspects of the historical aspects of Christianity because it is historically Jewish and so he kind of created his own idea of the canon and so you have the early church responding to this guy saying like look this guy is false this guy isn't right and this is how we know that he's not right because he doesn't line up with paul he actually believes a different uh deity he actually believed in two different gods like there was the god of the bible the of the jewish people and then there's a new new god that was had been revealed so it was definitely like you could see like in the beginning like this cat wasn't following traditional Christianity. So he basically like lost his influence within the church. Like the church shut him down and kicked him out, so to speak. Um, so again, you see the, the church basically kind of like protecting itself. Like when these groups did come up that were offering something besides Christianity, such as Simon Magus, um, the guy who attempted to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter. It goes on, I believe it's in Eusebius's work, uh, the, the histories, that talks about like um, Simon the Magus, the wizard or whatever he calls himself, um, starts a cult saying that he's the resurrected Jesus. Again, doesn't line up with Scripture, but here's, here's another group, quote unquote, of trying to, you know, uh, piggyback, off piggyback, the piggyback of, off the success oh, yeah. Of, yeah. of it, and and you know, you have these early church people like, you know, Aronius was the disciple of Papus, and Papus was the disciple of John the Apostle, and so was Polycarp. Also, I mean, so it's like you have these figures that can trace their their tutelage, so to speak from the actual apostles and they're like we've remained true to what we've heard from john the apostle we've heard it from john we have it in his writings we've heard it from our mentors and we're holding on to it still to this day and so it's kind of like this preservation of the new testament ideas and if anything kind of tried to come along and say hey we're different we're better it was a way that they could measure with what was being said, it's like, no, this does not line up with what biblical Christianity is, even though at that time it was kind of like still in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so we see a history of, you know, I'm trying to find a good illustration to kind of, and what the thing that kind of keeps coming to my mind is a think of a city's water filter. The This water is coming through, and it'll give you life. It'll save you from uh, dehydrating. But there is so much gunk and crud in that water. 
And uh, there are some times in the history of the church you could look straight into the water, if you want to use that for a metaphor for the church's message, and you couldn't even recognize it for what it was. It was so brown. It was so filthy with uh, all these different ideas and opinions, uh, people trying to raise up certain teachings of a teacher, certain letters that have been dug up from the ground and trying to raise them up against what the, the 66 books of Scripture say. And the test of time and God's providence has always been the filter that weeds that stuff out. When it contradicts the central message as it is known, kick it out. When it comes up with a leader who very obviously disqualifies himself either through being immoral or through uh, trying to build up his own esteem, having very obvious self-interest in what he was teaching, it, that had to be weeded out. When uh, writings that claimed authorship of people who were already dead and in the ground, desperate to get authority for itself, weeded out. And as it passes through that filter, you know, God has made sure that that water has always become clean enough to keep the gospel advancing. Mm-hmm. I think of, um, I'm not going to waste too much time. I'm trying to think of, there's a female scholar who is mainstream. She's not a believer, but she studied the history of the church from the outside in. And her name is something, 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 but I'm not going to waste too much time. But she <laughs> she calls it a clutter sale. She says that when Christianity um, as an entity in any form, whenever humans touch it and they make it their own, they kind of treat it like their living space. They'll put their own furniture in. They'll hang up their own pictures. um, They'll sit down and, you know, you you will see, you know, residue to suggest that they've been there. Um, A cup circle on a table lets you know that someone was drinking something and so uh, uh, stuff that makes a house look lived in. And she said every 500 or so years, um, she they, you'll see a great, um, basically a shuffling of everything in there. Um, it'll actually have a yard sale to cl- clean itself out and preserve the truth of itself. And she sees it as a religious movement trying to reinvent itself for a changing world, I see it as God in his providence um, making sure that the gospel outlasts the the living, the living in that's been taking place because humans have been entrusted with this gorgeous truth. Therefore, sometimes it's time to purge that, so that the, purge the past so that the timeless stuff can make it through. And so uh, she calls it a rummage sale, and she sees certain examples the coming of Christ was a rummage sale for the Jews when they it became Christianity as we know it. Um, the 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 end of Paul's ministry when all this chaos about Gnosticism and so forth was cleared up, at least for the time being, that was a rummage sale. Uh, Constantine um, coming before this this uh, council in the three hundreds A.D. A whole other story for another show, but. I think we've talked about it a little they, bit. <laughs> I'm sure we did. And so if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. <laughs> that was a rummage sale. And then um, the Great Schism, when the Greek Orthodox Church broke away from the Catholic Church, and you had two denominations, that was one. And then the Reformation was one. And so she said that the there were a bunch of little ones, but the biggies, such as the founding of the Catholic Church, 
the Reformation that broke away from the Catholic Church. All these are massive rummage sales where Christianity reinvents itself outwardly. But I say the best way for the church to reinvent itself and become modern is to return to the message that it has had from the beginning. If you have a Bible in a room and put it on a table and stack so much crap around it that you can't find where you put your Bible, you know, if you lose sight of that, then that is what the church does every now and then is it loses sight of its own message. And by cleaning itself out, it'll finally find what it was looking for and it'll be able to pick it back up. Yeah. Instead of focusing on um, things that please crowds and, and, um, you know, things that are socially acceptable in today's society, you know, things of that nature that kind of clutter the way, and, and then suddenly there'll be a, a breath of fresh air that says, hey, we need to focus on the gospel. We've lost sight of the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like what Robert's saying there. And, I, and I, I think that's overall, I mean, that's Christianity. <laughs> because, again, you know, like Robert was saying, I mean, you know, was there a time when the Catholic Church was on the right path? Sure, in the very beginnings of it. I mean, it was nice. It was a good thing. You know, I mean, obviously we de- we've debated about Constantine's, you know, conversion, whether or not it's legit or not. I don't. We don't know. But at the end of the day, Christianity was no longer persecuted. They then had the right to be able to worship in, in truth. And so, yes, there was some negative connotations to that, but overall was positive. And then from that, you had this creation of deadwood, so to speak, that then Martin Luther's like, hey, we fell away from the gospel. You know, we've got all these indulgences and we've got all these ties that, you know, that supposedly you, you pay the priest X amount of dollars and he'll pray a cousin out of purgatory. I mean... It got ridiculous. And all these saints, well, the Bible says that if you believe in Jesus, you're a saint. No post-death miracle needed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're, you're, you're a saint if you're saved by Jesus. If you believe Jesus, you're a saint. That's it, period. And, and so Martin Luther <clears throat> cleared the deadwood, so to speak, of the Catholic Church and and... And it's better for it because it can then you can then look at the Catholic Church and go, oh, well, they preserved a bunch of history, and that's good that they preserved the history, but they've also missed the mark. And we can go and look at the gospel and go, yeah, this is this lines up, this doesn't line up, and we can actually sift through that and pull away the extra stuff, the traditions of of, of the popes and things of that nature, or you know. Going in a different route, you know, we can look at some of the new religious movements that have begun in the Americas and go, okay, this guy named Joseph Smith uh, who had two tablets of gold and translated them, and then you got the Book of Mormon. And then from the Book of Mormon, you got theologies and, and doctrines and and these other these other books that are like, where did they come from? Who? Wh- what? Mormon? No, that doesn't jive with classical Christianity. So it's like you can actually do a compare contrast of even that. So it's like, okay, well, this doesn't line up with what traditional Christianity actually is. Like the Mormons out there, now I'm not trying to bash the Mormons, but it's like where do they get this stuff? <laughs> 
like where you can become a god and, and not only can you become a god, your your children can like you can basically evolve to deityhood. It's like okay, that does there's no biblical foundation for that. You have to go outside the Bible for that, which is what they did. They went to you had the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, um I just said it. Doctrines and Theologies, I believe, is the third one. Is there another one? I think there's four. Let's see. Um, I'm just re- reviewing in my head. Book of Mormon, um, Doctrines and Covenants, The Pearl of Great Price. I want to say, if that if that's not all three, if there was a fourth one, I think it was something along the lines of, you know, the so-and-so of Joseph Smith. I think his name yeah. is on there somewhere. Yeah. Maybe someone wrote down... Like what you'd consider like an authorized version of his life, but I, I'm not like thinking of something right now. To Joseph Smith. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but I mean, and it just like you can look at that and go, well, you can believe that if you want, but it doesn't line up with classical Christianity. And it's like you can weigh <clears throat> the 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 core ideas of what Scripture teaches, and then weigh it against these other books. And go, they're not matching up. They're not lining up. And so you can believe that if you want to, but there might be eternal ramifications for believing those things. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just throwing what? it out there. Um, it's it's a carpet burn that burns for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, and, uh, and I, I feel like, you know, that's one thing when we talk about the Scriptures, we talk about the Bible. Um, it's a very complex thing, and you can get caught up in it. But the central idea of it is the gospel, is Jesus. Like I was t- talking about in the previous episode, um, Jesus, the Old Testament and the New Testament, with Jesus in the middle, that is that is the co- the gospel, the good news, the, the 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 solution to our problem. And not just, you know, I mean, it's like even taking Christianity, putting it to the side, no one would say our world is perfect that our world is good. Everyone would acknowledge that there's something wrong with our world. Even if you put Christianity on the side, let's just say the table Christianity for a second. Would anyone say that our world is perfect and good and is the way it ought to be? There's something within us, not just Christians, but all people that say there's something wrong with our world. When a child gets cancer and they die, a terrible death, or there's a horrific uh, plane crash, or uh, there's a, a hurricane that wipes out uh, somebody's home. We go, what? What is going on here? There's an injustice in our society. There's an injustice in this world. Like you see people who try to do everything they can that's right, and yet they don't get ahead. But then the people who do wickedness. What we would classify as wickedness, they get ahead. And it's like, how is that fair? How is that right? And we all scream for a a rightness to be made in this world. And I think the Bible correlates to that cry because God created the world and it was good and there was nothing wrong with it. That was the world that we yearn for. You know, we want that world. But then what happened? We chose to listen to somebody who did not have our interest at heart. <laughs> we listened to an entity that was created, and but he, for whatever reason, the, the Scripture doesn't record why Satan does what he does, other than just the fact that maybe he got prideful. 
But other than that, there's nothing else that says why he did what he did. It's not our place to know that. Some people might speculate. We don't know. Um, and it was from that falling away where he chose to do out, go outside his uh, go outside his um, assignment and change not just humanity but the entire world. All of creation, all of it is affected by what he chose to do and then what humanity and it's also in, it, in its error chose to do as well. And it's put everything, it's twisted everything. And, and, it, and when you put that in the perspective, because humanism doesn't answer that. Atheism doesn't answer that. Many of the religions out there don't even answer that. They might... They, in some cases, don't even acknowledge that evil exists. They might go, it's an illusion. You're just imagining that there's evil there. It's not actually there. You know, there's some forms of Buddhism and, and Hinduism, not, not like bashing them, but that's the reality. Is they, they will say that evil is an illusion that you need to just get rid of. But the reality of it is, is evil is there, and the Bible correlates to that. The Bible says that evil is actually bad and it's not good and to, to flee from it. And then not only that, there's also eternal ramifications for doing evil. You know, if humanism is true, if atheism is true, the guy who go out and rapes 20 women, it doesn't matter whether what he did was good or bad or whatever. It was just something he chose to do. Now we go, society says... You know that that's wrong, but there's no moral. There's no grounds for moral superiority, if that makes sense. But the Bible gives grounds for that. Like there is actually a good, there is actually an evil, there is a God who says that these things are right and these things are wrong, and it correlates to what is actually right and wrong in our in our hearts. We might disagree on the application of those things. But we would agree that those things are wrong. Like, raping babies is terrible, and it should not happen ever. Ever, 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 ever. Right? But it happens. And when it happens, we prosecute those individuals. I want to say other words, but I'll just say individuals who do those things because they did something that was evil, and they should not do it. And we are trying to prevent society from going into that direction. You know, it's like not to say that society can't choose to do evil because the Nazis were a clear example of where a society chose to do what was evil instead of what was right. So, again, I don't know. That's just kind of a tangent there. I apologize. But but anyways, the Bible correlates to reality, the, the reality within our hearts that there's something wrong. and But there's not only just something wrong with our world, there's something wrong with us. And God stepped into our world he stepped down to he it's kind of like I, I was listening to the radio and we had talked about this and there was a speaker who was like whenever a child whenever your child is out riding a bike and they get in a wreck and you walk over to them to comfort them you get down on their level and you tell them that it's okay that it's going to be okay that you and you comfort them that's what jesus did jesus came into our world to comfort us and say, hey, look, there's a solution. Trust in me. Believe in me. I am the solution. There's a lot of history in the Bible. There's a lot of 
information about the Bible. There's a lot of information about church history. And we can sit here and we can talk about it for days and days and days. But the reality of it is the gospel is that Jesus changes people's lives every day, every way. You know, there's people who have drug addictions, porn addictions, what have you. And they ask, not that it's easy, but they ask Jesus to help them with those things and, and get the accountability and get the counseling. And then God brings it, them out of those things, brings them out of the addictions and all those things. Whereas atheism doesn't do that. If anything, it plunges you into despair because where, you know, if there is no God, there's no moral oughtness. There's no moral superiority. So then what makes slavery wrong? What makes racism wrong? It actually is a byproduct of humanistic evolution, you know, because if humanity can change over time based upon environment, then there's a constant fluctuation. I've mentioned this before. I'm maybe, maybe not in this setting. It might have been elsewhere. But when that happens, when there's, there's no constant and it's all in flux, then there's no true humanity except for that which is in power. And when that happens, then you have the Holocaust because then there's those who don't uh, meet that same criteria. And it creates atrocities. See this. So in the few minutes we've got left on this, we've kind of touched on everything. Salvation. <laughs> well, 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 we we've touched on um, kind of the historical, kind of how the Bible came to be, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of what the Bible is for kind of an agnostic atheist point of view Mm -hmm. like refuting some of the arguments um but let's switch gears and let's talk about from a christian aspect so let's you know you're a newly um devout christian or you're born again christian whatever it is what does the bible what is reading the bible what does that do to you um, cause I think, uh, that, cause I think that's a good thing that people need to hear. Um, mm-hmm. what does actually reading the Bible do to you mm-hmm. as a Christian, mm-hmm. or even if you're not a Christian right. and uh, at the same token too, cause you hear a lot of people like you read the Bible, but a lot of pastors, mm-hmm. a lot of churches say you study the Bible. Mm-hmm. So what does studying mm-hmm. the Bible mean? Right. Versus reading the Bible, mm-hmm. you know, so kind of touch on kind of touch on that a little bit okay. for, for everybody. Yeah. Um, so just let's play this game out. So you say you become a believer. Well, first off, it's kind of like if you imagine you're kind of like a baby, like you've you've accepted Jesus Christ. You've asked for him to forgive you of your sins and the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. Um, but the thing about the, I mean, those things are spiritually true. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, but there's also an element of what's called sanctification or growth, spiritual growth of an individual. And so as someone becomes, a, I mean, after they're a believer, the the Bible is kind of like is our 
measure of how to develop our thinking about God, our thinking about ourselves, because that's that's a lot of times um, we have like when you become a Christian, you have a lot of especially depending on your age. If you come at a later age, you have what's a lot of like baggage. Um, and I will say that's maybe theological baggage, baggage thinking like not sure about who God is in comparison to Osiris or like you might have misconceptions about who God is and you might have misconceptions about what Christianity is that, um, that if you don't read the scripture and if you don't go to church, they don't get dealt with. So, like, if you have a misconception about who God is and say, you know, I never read the scriptures, then it's like that doesn't, doesn't ever get answered. That doesn't, and so if you go to try to talk to someone about your belief and they say, well, the God of the Bible plus whatever else. And so if you've not, you know, developed that theology, for lack of a better term, then you don't have a way to articulate a, refu- a, a refutation and making a distinction between these other pagan I- ideas of who God is and versus what the actual one true God is. And so that's one of the reasons for scripture purposes and going to church is learning those distinctions, if that makes sense. Like, God does not change. And if God does not change, then that means he's the same now as he was 2,000 years ago in the time of, you know, when Jesus walked the earth, etc., etc. And so there's application to that idea. And then it goes back to, okay, well, in, in my idea of what Christianity is as far as how I practice, how I love my wife or how I love my you know, girlfriend at the time, who, you know, like whoever this person is at the time of their salvation, you know, there is a conduct that Paul would say is right. And then there's a conduct that's wrong. Not that that makes your salvation right or wrong, but there is a conduct that glorifies the Lord. And there's a conduct that does not glorify the Lord. And so it's like by reading the scripture and going to church, these two things are critical for a believer because they help clarify the bad ideas that you have like like you can be if you're having premarital sex before you're a christian you then become a christian well you can't keep doing what you're doing and not expecting there to be some kind of spiritual ramification not that you can't be saved when you're going through those things that's all i'm saying but there is a certain accountability that as a believer like I bring other brothers and sisters into my life to help hold me accountable and go, hey, look, this area of your life isn't matching up with what Jesus said it should look like. And so iron sharpens iron. You, you develop, you grow, and you change in accordance to the Word of God. And if you don't go to church and if you don't read Scripture – then you don't have that understanding, if that makes sense. Is that you driving? Yeah. Is that dri- <laughs> Don't okay. do that to me, Robert. Don't do that to I'm me. I'm sitting, sitting here uh, shaking my head no just to throw him off. <laughs> Heretic? Yes. <laughs> Go for it. 
Um, but yeah, in the last few minutes, just to add to you know what Zach's been pounding, um, <laughs> literally, yeah, uh, throwing it down. But you know, switching gears, you know, with what he's been, you know, he switched gears for us. Talking, we've been defending the Bible for the last couple of hours, <clears throat> and then phase into so what, and you know what Zach's been saying, the importance of it. And he's the one who used the illustration, you know, Jesus knelt and talked to a child, uh, we are the children. And uh, so, you know, explain rocket science to a six-year-old. Explain to a two-year-old why the movie isn't real. I mean, it can be very hard to do. Einstein said, if you did, if you're not able to explain it to an eight-year-old, you don't really understand it yourself. And so what the Bible is for us it's God stooping. It's the infinite explaining itself to a finite brain that's so much lower than itself. It has to be very careful about the vocabulary it uses in the very language that it created and gave to the human race. It is the the message that has stood the test of time. It is solidified. It is stamped. It is sealed. We have it. And it has given the church something to go back to. We've talked about the rummage sales, um, you know, where the church kind of reinvents itself, comes back to basics. If there's no foundational basics of what God has chosen to reveal about himself, uh, the way God has chosen to reveal it, then there is nothing to go back to to define what the church is meant to do, to define for us what Jesus came to accomplish, to define who we are in him. And so then the church could be anything from a three-ring circus to a room full of accountants to a cage full of monkeys, human or literal. <laughs> um, I mean, w- without it, there's no definite def- uh, definite source of information about what we have got to believe, the bare basics. But it's not just about um, forming a church identity. Of course, that's massively a part of it, but individually, too. Without the Bible and without a definite, reliable, unchanging canon of 66 individual books, no more, no less, you know, then you can't have any real relationship with something outside yourself. Um, I remember, I think it was one of it was one of the counseling shows during the daytime hours. I want to say Dr. Phil. I don't know, but uh, it was one of those in that same vein without throwing a name out there and it not being true. But you already have. I did. <laughs> it was in that vein to give people a basic idea of the kind of show. <laughs> and one of these sessions was, uh, it was one of those confrontations where two people who've never really met each other or they haven't seen each other in years, they, they're in the same room on camera just to heighten the tension, but... What this particular situation was, there was a young woman being stalked by another young woman. And, um, you know, issues, uh, you know, what, what, whatever the sexuality and orientation was aside, the, the reason this was an issue is it became a, an issue of cyber abuse. One woman had a crush on the other. And she started, sent, the crusher started sending messages to the crushee, a total stranger, and popped into her messages one day and said, I think you're cute. And the other woman, the one being pursued, just was not 
interested in the slightest. But what happened was this woman, the the chaser, was obviously un- mentally unstable because she would constantly be sending messages to this other person as if they were having a conversation. She would be like, LOL, that's hilarious. Or what do you think? Me too. And so there was, and so this woman was trying the the chaste was trying to ignore the chaser, but she would hold her phone and watch these messages come in, a uh, completely one sided conversation. Uh the other uh the the person sending the messages was responding to this person as if that the as if the messages had actually come. So she had was hearing these responses in her head and then sending messages to the other person and so basically the chaste was willing to come on this show and you know risk being humiliated just to face this person who was sending these messages and call them out and you know basically it was um she had asked this person to leave her alone and it didn't work and so she decided maybe if I bring her on a show at the very least, if she still doesn't work, uh, if she still doesn't stop after public humiliation, maybe I, this show has resources to get her help. But uh, the reason I brought this up wasn't just to share some spooky <laughs> psychological story and then, okay, into podcast. Dun, dun, dun. The Bible for two hours and then counseling. But, uh,. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry, beat him up, but uh, but yeah, this woman got in her stalker's face and begged her to stop sending her messages. Said, "I don't know you. I have never responded to you except that one time to ask you to stop. You've got to stop uh, sending me stuff. Um, I'm not really answering you. I don't know what if it's in your head. I don't know if you dream it. I don't know if your grasp on reality is is different than ours. But you know, something's got to give." But uh, the reason I bring this up is, um, you know, that's what we would be if there was no scripture. If a relationship was totally one-sided, if we had an, a title, if we had God, and it, you know, we had no idea what he, she, it might be, but we knew it was out there, it would we would be the stalker. We would be throwing these messages out in the void with nothing coming back at us, okay, and we'd be making it up as we there. go. Okay, okay. We'd be making this up as we go. Right. What are your thoughts, God? Crickets. Me too. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. Since there's nothing coming back at me, I can agree. And it's kind of like dating a, a, a cardboard cutout of your crush. I mean, there's nothing there. But it's empty. And if you're honest with yourself, you're feeding into the void. And that's what the Christian faith or any faith would be without a foundational other to anchor the other side of the relationship. If there are other pieces to a a healthy two-sided conversation, then you're genuinely bouncing off something outside yourself. And that is what the, the value of Scripture is. It's one message but it's meant to be personalized so everyone gets the same message but that message is meant to apply directly to you and so um just and zach could add anything he wants but my closing thoughts and it exhausts anything i have to say tonight (laughs) um aw tozer a famous pastor from the 60s he once wrote a book called the pursuit of god and if it's I can't remember if it's in that book or one of his devotional thoughts, but it is his his thought. He basically said, 
God is so big and infinite, he can give 100% of himself to even one Christian praying in their bedroom without exhausting himself in any way. And so you think how many prayers around the globe go up to him constantly in different languages, all these different needs and all these. He never gets overwhelmed. He listens patiently to every single one. He ministers his presence to every single one who genuinely know him. And yet we are all receiving the same exact message from him word for word that sustains the same relationship because he wants us to know who he is. He's always the same. He always has the same expectations. He always wants us to know that he fulfilled the same path to him by that one event in that one person. And he's forever efficient, so why would he constantly repeat himself? Therefore, write it, get it out there, preserve it, and here it is. And it does not cheapen the relationship. A text message from your spouse would not cheapen the relationship just because they're not in the room. Receiving a a verse, a passage of Scripture, as long as it genuinely came from that being, that doesn't diminish the relationship with that being. The reason you have it in your hand is because that being initiated it so that that part of the relationship would be fulfilled. And that's the importance of Scripture on a church level, on an individual level, and if you really want to blow your mind tonight as you're laying in bed on a global scale. Mm -hmm. So many different things coming at him, but he only has one message, and he just constantly pushes it back at us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... and, um I don't know if there's really anything else I could add other than that's just, you know, the, all those all those truths that Robert was talking about there about, you know, God being involved and in all those things are found in the Scripture. So it's like, the, how do you know those things if you've never read the Scriptures? And that's what makes the, the Scripture important in our lives. It's like, well, if you don't know what you don't know, then how can you know that you don't know? Right? (laughs) So in order to know, (laughs) yeah, so in order to know that you don't know, you got to read Scripture to know that you don't know. So then you can then know what you do know. Exactly. (laughs) I said that right, I think. (laughs) If not anyone listening... For on the other end of this conversation, can <laughs> gladly comment <laughs> on our website or on our Facebook page. If you know what we just said, <laughs> if you're able to pick up what we're putting down and not drop it, we did our job. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but that goes back to again, you know, uh, uh, there there is a a found. It's kind of like. The Bible gives you the bricks that you need to build your faith. And the Bible is a representation of the things that help you build your faith, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because whenever you look at the fact that God, it says that he loves you and he's for you. That's something like in your darkest hour, whenever you're all... Hell's breaking loose, but you know that God loves you. It's like, then you can face whatever. Not that it makes it easy, but you can still take that with you and hold that 
knowing that God loves you and that knowing that there is an internal future. Again, you don't know that unless you read the scripture to know that there is a future. And you don't go to if you don't go to church, then you don't know those things. So by going to church, by reading the scripture, you then learn and it then affects what you believe about God affects your actions. If you think God is this is this invicted not evictive, uh vindictive um uh entity that does not care about you, that hates you, that and actually wants you to suffer, your actions will flow from those thinking, those thoughts. But if you know that God loves you, that he cares about you, cares about you so much that he he sent himself the second person of the trinity to die in your place so that now you if you accept that that's his solution of salvation that then you can then be with him forever and ever and ever and even if you get cancer and die a terrible death on this side of things that in the long term eternal perspective that you are then with him forever and ever and ever it brings more peace more comfort that can ever possibly imagine and by knowing those things it gives comfort it gives um uh the the uh, hope yes there, there's the word <laughs> the word that i was like what's the word i can't mention the word <laughs> it's hope yeah <laughs> hope and uh, and that's the reality of, of of the importance of scripture. I mean, and and that's and from Genesis all the way to the Book of Revelation to the end, you get that. And the more you read, the more you learn. The more it affects your attitude. The more it affects your gratitude. The more it affects your how do how do I how do I love my neighbor? How do I mean? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do I do that? Well, read the scripture. Read the Bible. You know, be challenged in your church. And if your church isn't reading the scripture, then it's, is it is it a real church? You know, there's there's your, there's your test. If it's If you guys are just getting together and talking about sports, that's not a church. If you guys are getting together and you're talking about Jesus and the gospel, that's a church. Mm-hmm. And that will bring transformation both to you and to others. And and that's the relevancy of the Scripture in our daily walk in life. And, Robert, are you looking to passages to share, or are you just playing with the Bible? I'm playing with my Bible, showing it that I love it. Ah, <laughs> that's awkward. <laughs> and, you know, it's awkward. Why does I say that? Because I said it, it's awkward. That's what makes it awkward. Even Absolutely. <laughs> Let's keep this going so that he has plenty to edit out at the end of this. (laughs) No, this is all standard. No. (laughs) Twinkle, twinkle, little bat. How I wonder where you're at. Up above the world, shining like a diamond. I wish I knew what rhymed with diamond. (laughs) Simon. Rhymond. Simon. (laughs) Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater. Deny the Lord like Simon Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Leave that one. (laughs) <laughs> Halloween rhymes because we're recording this in October. <laughs> but yet, you know, 
as we're trying to draw it back into reality here and, and, and what's actually important, um, just that's that's the that's the importance of scripture. You know, it's it's for development. It's for like, it's for it's for you. It's it's like if God loves you, but you don't know how much He loves you until you read the scripture and you get the depth and the breadth of how much He loves you. In that He sent His Son to die in your place, so that you don't have to. That you can then have eternal life and then be with Him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You know, it, it it just is that comfort that no amount of humanism, no amount of evolutionary thought or evolution thought, none of that can compare to that relationship. And that you grow by reading and get involved with the other believers. Amen, brother. Well, um, everybody, I hope you all enjoyed a deep dive into the Bible, history of the Bible, the significance of the Bible. Um, uh, I know I've learned a lot. Um, that was, <laughs> I just kind of lost my train of thought there, too. I started thinking of other things. I was like, I'm talking, so I need to continue that train of thought before I board another train. Um, <laughs> anyway, it happens. Geez. It really yeah. does happen. Oh, my brain. Um, but anyway, uh, no, I really uh, hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, we'll definitely be back with you next time. I think uh, what we decided was we we're going to actually dive into Psalms yep. next time. Next so that's going to be fun. Yep. Um, so, um, yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be interesting. Just uh, what are the Psalms and kind of diving into that. So yeah. I'm sure everybody will enjoy that. But, uh, yeah, one last time, if you want to interact with us, uh, definitely visit our Facebook page, Achieving Christian Thought Podcast, uh, also theactpod.com. And, uh, yeah, everybody, we'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm. See ya.